The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. First point I call happy feet. Uh, and the reason is, there's actually good there's reasons for this. Uh, literally in the Hebrew in verse 1 it says that, that Jacob picked up his feet. Okay, He wakes up in the morning, he sets up this altar, he worships God, he makes vows to God. And um, he's in many ways a new man, right? He's had this conversion experience. And perhaps for the first time in his life he has a new sense of purpose and meaning about his life. Um, and uh, the, the, the phrase that's used there, he picked up his feet, is a very unusual term in Hebrew. Uh, it's, it's used more commonly of lifting up one's eyes. And really the idea is that he's got this light step to his feet. I mean, he's like walking on air. He's met God. He's a happy guy. And uh, he's had this salvation experience. He's encountered God. His life will never be the same. And he's now on this much different path. Uh, the road he's on now is not just to Haran, right? He is on a road that stretches on to eternity. Okay, he's on a path now that he's assured to go to his destination, to find success there, to return home, and to someday become a great nation and a great people, to be a blessing to the world, and to have God go with him. Right? He's now on a different course. And so because of that, his, his step is light. And there's something about, you know, uh, many of us, maybe perhaps this was our experience when we first came to Christ, uh, maybe we've seen it with others. When they first come to Christ, they first encounter the gospel. And uh, the burden of their own sin, their own sinfulness is lifted away. And they've got happy feet, right? How many of you, kind of when you got saved, were just like a little over, over the top? Anybody? You know, <clears throat> just you were happy. Uh, you know, God saved you. And everywhere you went, you just bubbled with this great enthusiasm and joy of life, right? Well, that's kind of Jacob. He's this new convert who's clueless, right? And uh, he just knows God loves him and he's got a purpose and, and life can't go wrong now, right? And he's on the right track and things are going well. And uh, as the story unfolds, you see this guy who's just way too happy, right? He's, had, he's like a guy who's had way too many cups of coffee in the morning, you know? And life is going way too well for him and you just want to go slap him. And this is Jacob, really happy. Things are going really well. And uh, so he's got these happy feet, and he travels, and he f- comes to this uh, field, and he is just brimming with confidence, right? And certainly the gospel, the work of God in our life, ought to have those kind of effects, right? Uh, the fact that we have come to the cross, and Jesus has paid for our sin, has given us forgiveness, has given us new life in Christ, has given us an eternal destiny and destination, ought to give us this confidence about life, this joy, this happiness, right? It's, it's not, unla- you know, sadly you go into a lot of churches and people look like they've just been eating sour lemons, right? And they look like joy is, is the last thing that will ever come into their life. That's really not supposed to be the experience of Christians, There is something that's supposed to be joyful about salvation, right? About our eternal future. And there ought to be in our life a certain kind of confidence. Um, 
And certainly Jacob is just bubbling with this bold confidence, knowing that God is on, on our side. And you've got to get the setting or get the picture. Jacob comes to this kind of wilderness area. He's not to a town yet. He's, he's still out in the, in the hills, out in the countryside. And he comes to this field, probably describing a pasture land. The word that's used here for field is a word not of cultivated land, but of open grazing and pasture. And he comes to this, this area, this field, this pasture land, and there's a well. And around this well are three flocks of sheep and the shepherds. Uh, and it's the sun's going up. It's perhaps mid-morning, approaching midday. Uh, the time when the shepherd and the sheep uh, should be out at pasture, out grazing. But instead, they've got all the sheep gathered, and they're huddled around this well. And it's kind of a strange sight for Jacob. And the narrator gives us a little bit of the background. And apparently in this place, um, they've got this well, and they, they keep it covered with a huge rock, right? And the purpose would be to guard and protect the well from thieves, right? And so they have to wait until all the shepherds gather, and uh, together they uh, lift this heavy stone off the well, and together water the sheep, kind of a community project, and then replace the stone back on the well. Uh, this, this bit of background gives us some insight into this community. Uh, these are kind of my own observations, but uh, you can take it for what it's worth. Um, I think it tells us four things. Number one, these people aren't the most sharing people. Okay? Okay, when you lock your well, uh, you're not really into sharing the water. Okay? Now, maybe it didn't have a lot of water. We don't know. Maybe it was necessary. Uh, but they're communicating clearly, this is our well, and strangers are not welcome to it. Secondly, it was a very tight-knit community. Uh, they did this as a community project. Okay? They helped each other out. They worked together. It's a good thing. It reminds me of uh, when I pastored in small churches. This is a small church. Tight-knit community. If you're on the outside, you're going to stay on the outside, right? Because we're all about us. And we're not about people on the outside. And strangers are not welcome. And you get some of the feel for that when Jacob arrives. And he says, hey, friends. And uh, he asks them, you know, do you know, you know, do you know Laban? Does he live here? And they give this simple answer. Yep. <laughs> okay. Kind of gives you an idea of the community you're in here. Uh, is he as he will? Yep. That's about all they get, how he gets out of them. Okay, so that's kind of the kind of community it is. Thirdly... It's very clear that there are traditions here. Okay? There are traditions. There are ways things are done. And the way it's done is you all show up at the well and you wait until everybody gets there. And then you water the sheep and you move the rock and you put it back. Right? There's traditions. You don't mess with traditions. And fourthly, well, I guess there's only three. Never mind. I don't have, I don't have a fourthly. Uh, you can get an idea of the community, right? Uh, so, so Jacob comes, uh, and he's oblivious to all this, right? He's just oblivious, because he's Mr. Happy Feet, right? He's Mr. I've got a destiny, and, and life is unstoppable for me. And uh, he, he's Mr. Friendly. He's all happy and smiley. Hey, and it's, I love this. It says in you know, his greeting is, hey, friends. Okay, he's never met these people before, but all of a sudden they're all his friends, right? Because he's got Jesus, right? He's Mr. Happy. Hey, friends. And... Uh, you know, these guys are not, not so reciprocal in their relationship. Uh, he has this discussion with them, discovers that he's in the right place. God has led him 
sovereignly to this place where he's his final destination. Uh, his uncle Laban lives nearby. And lo and behold, here comes Rachel, Laban's daughter, with Laban's flock. Uh, one of the group of herdsmen that comes to the well before they can water the sheep. And uh, she comes and he's discussing the whole deal. And I love, um, you know, she's coming up the hill to the well, across the field. And uh, in his enthusiasm... He freely shares his advice and wisdom. Okay, again, this is just like, this is Mr. New Christian, right? I've got all the answers to life. Let me, let me just bless you with my insight. And he says to them, what are you guys doing here? Can't you see the sun's up? You should be out grazing your sheep. What are you doing, you know, hanging out at the well? And he says, he says to them quite directly, water the sheep and get, get them out to pasture, right? Um... Great missionary approach and strategy, right? Come to a new culture, a new place. You don't really know the customs. Don't worry about it. Just run them over with your advice, right? That's kind of what he does here, okay? After all, they're his friends, right? Everybody's his friends. Um, they're not impressed with his wisdom and uh, don't heed his advice. Along comes Rachel with her sheep. And you can just picture, okay, here's Jacob. He's happy feet. He's enthusiastic. He's confident. God's with him. And in a huge outburst of just wave of emotion and generosity and moving in his soul, he single-handedly runs across, grabs this massive stone, and by sheer determination and force, rips it off the mouth of the well, grabs a bucket and starts watering Rachel's sheep, right? Now, you know, just picture this scene. The farmers, you know, the shepherds, they're all just kind of staring blankly at this lunatic, right? Rachel's just in shock. Why, who is this guy, and what is he doing with my sheep, right? Waters all the sheep. Then he runs over, and he kisses her, right? Now, of course, this is not like a boy-girl kiss. This is like how they greeted people then, probably the whole cheek thing. Uh, and then he breaks down weeping and sobbing. He's just overwhelmed with joy and he starts crying with joy okay at this point Rebecca's or Rebecca Rachel is getting a little freaked out a little weirded out by the whole thing okay Mr. Happy is a bit much right and finally reason comes to him and he explains I'm your cousin I'm your long lost cousin right at that Rachel takes the chance to escape runs fetches her dad who comes out uh, to the well and uh, takes uh, Jacob home and uh, verse 14 kind of the punchline of this part of the story uh, after Jacob's explained his story explained his journey explained meeting God explained how God brought him to the well the friendly shepherds who were so helpful and how God brought the sheep and Rachel at the right moment and I was overcome and he moved the rock all by himself and tells his story and at the end, Laban says, Truly, you are my flesh and blood. Right? Ah, it's a happy story, right? Happy story, happy moment. And uh, implied in this line, uh, and very strategically put it kind of the, at the end of this section, uh, your family, right? Uh, God has sovereignly kept his promise. He's protected Jacob. He's watched over. He's guided him. 
And he's brought Jacob to Uncle Laban, uh, which was his goal. And uh, he's found favor there. Uh, he's found this beautiful girl who's a sheep herder. Later on in the story, we find out about her. Um, bottom line, Laban says, you are truly flesh and blood. And implied in that are some key principles. Um, first of all, well, kind of the overarching idea is that, is that when you're with family, you're with people you can trust, right? Okay, you found a safe place. You are among family now. You're not among these kind of rural shepherds that weren't real helpful. You are now in a safe place with people you can trust. You are with family, right? Because in that day, such as in ours, uh, there's a certain duty or responsibility that comes with being family, right? Uh, as Laban's nephew... There was a duty or obligation that Laban would, would look out for his nephew, would take care of his nephew. There's a sense that with family, you kind of cover each other's back, right? That there's a bond of love among family that's special, right? And uh, Laban actually affirms that you are my flesh and blood. Uh, there's something that I owe to you that, that we will look out for each other. We can count on each other because that's what family does, right? Um, that kind of ends the first scene. Second scene jumps ahead. Uh, fast forward one month. Okay, Jake's been living uh, with Laban for one month, and Laban comes to him and says, you should not work for me without pay just because we're relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. All right, so apparently uh, Jacob has not been idle. He's been a very helpful nephew, taking his family duty seriously. And he's been serving, Jake, uh, serving Laban, uh, helping in the fields perhaps. Um, doesn't say this, but I kind of have the suspicion that he took a, a, a great interest in sheep all of a sudden and uh, spent many hours assisting Rachel in herding the sheep. Uh, because when uh, Laban says, what do you want for your wages? He, he says simply, you know, I'm in love with Rachel. I'll work seven years if she could be my wife, right? Now, just to kind of put this in perspective, um, uh, you know, it seems kind of odd in our culture, like bargaining uh, for your daughter, uh, like, you know, can I buy your daughter? It didn't really work that way. Uh, in that culture, uh, it would have been required for Jacob to come up with a bride price, a dowry, right? Uh, given a day's wages, a pretty good fair bride price would have been maybe one or two years' labor. Okay? Three years' worth of labor would have been a very generous bride price. Seven years is like off the charts. Okay? Still Mr. Happy. Okay? Still Mr. Happy Feed. Still Mr. Enthusiastic. If one year's good, if three years is incredible, I'm doing seven. Okay? This, this guy's like not only really happy, but he's off the charts in love with Rachel, okay? And he, he's going to go to the furthest extreme to prove his love for Rachel. Uh, the text gives us another little uh, detail. It says, now, by the way, Laban happened to have two daughters. The older daughter, actually, literally, it says the firstborn daughter, important detail, the firstborn daughter was named Leah, Okay? The younger one was Rachel. 
uh, Leah had soft or weak eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Now, there's some debate over, we don't really know what the term weak eyes meant. It says Leah had soft or weak eyes. Some commentators say that's a bad thing, like she needed glasses, or there was like no sparkle in her eyes. Uh, the name Leah can be translated uh, weary. Okay, So if her name is weary and her eyes are kind of glazed over, um, not a real flattering description. Okay. Uh, it could also be this way, though. It could be saying that she had beautiful eyes. Okay? The end result, though, is this. Either way, okay, if she had beautiful eyes, it's like this. Leah had beautiful eyes. But Rachel was lovely all over. Okay? It's kind of like saying, well, she's got a nice personality. Right? She's got nice eyes. <laughs> okay? uh, Rachel wasn't, I mean, Jacob wasn't impressed. Okay? He was in love with Rachel. Okay, whatever it was Rachel had, uh, Jacob was all about it. Okay, he was drawn to Rachel. Uh, and he was off the charts in love with her. And he will do anything to have her as his wife. Right? And so he puts the highest possible price on his love, and he goes all out. Seven years. Um, now, uh, Laban agrees, uh, and he says, well, I'll, you know, I've got to give her to somebody. It would, it, it's better you than somebody else. Okay, great answer for your daughter, right? Um, uh, given the whole context here of family uh, and the family relationship, perhaps a better answer for Laban would have been, you know, uh, I appreciate your overzealous love for Rachel, and you're very generous often of seven years, but that's a bit excessive, you know. Uh, we're family. Let, let's just make it two. You know, two years is a very fair price, a very fair and generous uh, dowry. Let's say two years and you can be wed. Uh, but Laban goes for all seven, right? Because he's family, right? Um, well, it says that... Uh, and it ends this, the, the kind of the summary statement of this section is this line. It says, so J- Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, but his, I love this, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Okay, you should start hearing music right here, you know, really romantic stuff. You, know, you should start seeing like little hearts bur- flooding around Jacob's head. I mean, this guy's in love. What seven years for you, my dear? It's nothing, right? It is a light labor of love. And, uh, and this guy's just off the deep end, right? And, and that's, how, that's, kinda, that's what love does to you, right? Thankfully, it's not a permanent condition, okay? For most of us, marriage cures it, <laughs> okay? And there's... <laughs> See, everybody knows that nobody wants to laugh because... Oh. <laughs> And the reality is that it's a, you know, we call this puppy love, we call this infatuation, we call this going off the deep end. It's a real thing, right? It is a real thing. It's real love. And it is real love, okay? It's the real love that draws us together to our mate, that, uh, that makes us blind to reality, blind to the truth, 
blind to everything around us, right? Uh, thankfully, it does wear off because God wants us to move into something that's much more mature and substantial in love, right? And uh, while all the euphoria and feelings and happiness and joy of, of falling in love is a wonderful experience, God wants love to be something much more substantial and deep and significant. Uh, God wants love to be uh, like His love that's not based solely on emotion, uh, that is emotional, but it goes much deeper to something substantial and real. And there comes a time in every marriage, uh, as, a, as a counseling person, they studied this, and there's, there's, there's proof that it wears off after two years of marriage, right? Uh, you're good for the first two years, then it changes, right? And we need to learn that, that love is much richer, fuller, and deeper than just an emotional high. But by putting it off for seven years, Jacob's been able to nurture this emotional charge for seven years, right? And he is in love. And just picture this. I mean, picture uh, Jacob, kind of his tongue wagging out as he's following Rachel around everywhere, his eyes just enamored with her, right? Saying sweet, beautiful things to her, writing poems, writing silly love notes, you know, and, and he is in love. Uh, but then finally it says, the time came for him to marry. It's time for the wedding bells. Seven years are up. It's gone by as a, as a, as a moment. But the time comes and he goes to Laban and he says, okay, give me my wife. Okay, New Living says, uh, so that I can marry her. That really tames down the Hebrew. The Hebrew is much more direct. Okay, it's much more explicit. It's more like this. Give me my wife so I can sleep with her now. Okay, the time is here. Okay, that's the Bible, not me. Okay, if you don't like it, just read the Hebrew. Right? Uh, he's put in his seven years. He's not waiting another night. Uh, so Laban throws a huge party, uh, invites all of his friends, pours lots of wine, and gets uh, Jacob as drunk as he possibly can because, as we know, Laban is scheming and has other plans, right? Uh, have a great party, great festival, great celebration. The whole time, the whole day, uh, Jacob cannot get, keep his eyes off of Rachel, whose face was probably veiled, uh, but you know he can't stop thinking of her. Finally, the time comes. It's dark. Party's going on, and uh, Jacob goes to his tent, and Laban brings in his bride, who we know is Leah, right? Is Leah. And uh, Jacob, unknowingly in the dark, maybe a little drunk, maybe a little, you know, just blinded by love, uh, sleeps with and shares this incredibly intimate moment he's been dreaming of for seven years with a girl he does not love, right? And in the morning, uh, as the sun comes up and Jacob opens his eyes. There laying next to him is Rachel's sister. Right? Lovely eyes and all. Right? It's not what he bargained for. Uh, put yourself in his shoes. Uh, he was furious. He is outraged. And rightly so. 
you know, uh, think about what he lost here. Um, he had kept himself pure. Uh, Rachel had kept herself pure with this idea that they would devote themselves solely and singly to each other, right? That they would share in intimacy and togetherness and love this marriage bond and marriage bed that would be a sacred and special relationship between just the two of them. And now, okay, all that has been wrecked, right? All of it has been wrecked. Um, and, and as Jacob thinks this through and starts counting and considering the options, uh, in his day, uh, having sexual relationships with a girl was binding, right? In our day, sadly, it's so casual and so easily tossed away with so many young people before marriage that um, you know, we've lost a sense of sacredness and specialness of it. Uh, the reality is he knows that because he has slept with Leah, he cannot just throw her away. Right? Sleeping with her has bound him to her as a wife. Right? Uh, now, whatever relationship he, ha- he will have with Rachel will never be the same. Right? Uh, he will never have an a, uh, exclusive relationship that's special and sacred between him and the girl that he really loves. Okay, that's wrecked. It's lost and it's gone. You know, uh, <laughs> we live in a country where it's quite popular and common to get a second wife, right? And uh, if you've lived here very long, you've probably had offers. I know I have. Uh, that people volunteer for the, for the position, right? And uh, I remember sadly talking with a missionary who uh, was in the process of marrying a second wife. Uh, and he was justifying it, saying, well, look at, you know, all the, you know, Jacob, he had more than one wife. Abraham, he had lots of wives. Um, and he honestly was trying to justify that this was okay. Okay, if, you, if, you're, if you're thinking these kind of thoughts, okay, and you think, well, they did it in the Bible, it must be okay. Okay, uh, let me tell you, if Jacob could come and talk to you, okay, he would tell you a different story. He would tell you that he was given something that violated him to the deepest core of his being because he could not share an exclusive relationship with the girl he loved. Here's a suggestion, though. If you're thinking this is a good idea, if if this this thought has ever crossed your mind, okay, guys, I don't think it ever crosses the minds of ladies, but guys, okay, here's a suggestion. Talk it over with your wife. So, you know, hon, I got this great idea. I'm thinking I could get another wife. I could have two of you. Okay? See, see what she thinks about it. You know? And here's the deal. If she said, yeah, sure. I think it's a great idea. Then, well, then, you've got huge problems in your marriage. Okay? Bigger problems than you can imagine. All right? And you need to go get counseling and help seriously quick. Right? If your wife threatens to murder you, you have a great relationship. And be very thankful. And beg for forgiveness, forgiveness quick before she kills you. Okay? Um, it's a horrible thing that Jacob wakes up to. Horrible. Horrible. Right? Uh, and I can just imagine, just imagine Rachel. Okay? You, you've loved this guy for seven years. You have longed for this day for seven years to know that your sister is in your place, right? in your lover's arms, right? 
Jacob is furious. And he confronts uh, Laban. uh, And he says, what have you done? What have you done to me? Uh, Same words that uh, actually have been used throughout Genesis to imply the shock at the horribleness of this act, the inappropriateness of something like this. It's what uh, Abimelech said to Isaac when Isaac um, did not protect his wife. It's what the other Abimelech said to Abraham when Abraham did not protect Sarah. Right? He says, What have you done to me, Jacob? Raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? And I love, and Laban is a cool, cool guy. I mean, I'm not cool as in cool, cool as in un, unnerved, right? Unnerved, unmoved. He says, well, it's not our custom here to marry off the firstborn, okay? So he's thought this through. In fact, you kind of wonder how long he's been plotting this. Like, has he been plotting this from the very beginning for seven years? We don't know. But he's got it well thought through. But no problem, no problem. Just wait until this bridal week is over. Then we'll give you Rachel too. And you just need to work for seven more years. It's easy, right? No problem. Well, Jacob is trapped, right? Jacob is trapped. Um, and his options are very limited. Okay? Uh, we can speculate from you know 3,000 years later what he should have done, what he could have done, what he ought to have done. But really, Jacob was trapped. Right? Really, there were no other options for him than this plan. All right? to, to keep Leah, to take on Rachel, to become the husband of two wives, and to live the rest of his life in anything but happily ever after. Okay? Which is what happens when you have more than one wife. Right? There's never happily ever after if there's more than one wife. Okay? That's a biblical principle. Because right? God did not design it that way. Um, and in truth, it is not so happily ever after for Jacob. Um, you read through this story, and you think through what happened here, and you come back to the beginning start, to chapter 28, when God promised protection, when God promised to watch out for Jacob, right, to the question of God's sovereignty. Okay? Up until, you know, the wedding day, things were going well, and it seems that God was very much protecting Jacob. That God was very much watching out for Jacob. That God was directing his paths and leading him, and and that God's hand of blessing was on his life. What happened in chapter 29? What happened on his wedding day? Did God fall asleep? Okay. Where was God's protection? Right? Well, uh, there's, there's some answers to that. One o- option would be that, well, God couldn't really do anything about it. Right? Uh, to say that, though, denies God's sovereignty. It denies that God is truly able to uh, sovereignly control events in our lives and circumstances toward his end. Right? Uh, Second option would be that, well, it's really not that big a deal, right? Uh, but that's to deny the pain and suffering that it brought on Jacob and on Rachel, and perhaps even on Leah, who we don't know how much she was a very innocent victim of this whole thing. Um, 
also forced into it. Um, what does it mean to be for God to be sovereign, and what happened here? Um, well, I believe that what God is doing here is giving uh, Jacob a taste of his own medicine. Right? The reality is that God is sovereign, and uh, that God, in his sovereignty, may allow difficult things in our life. And I believe that while God was not the designer of this, Laban very much was, God did not prevent it. And in his sovereignty, he allowed these things to come into Jacob's life for a reason. And the reason is that God wants to use these to teach Jacob some very important things. You see, when Jacob had this encounter with God, it's much like us at the cross. Uh, He was on a new path. And in many senses, his life was guaranteed. There's really nothing Jacob could have done to mess up uh, being the child of promise. Same is true for you and I. When we come to the cross, we come to God, to his grace, and to his saving work in our life. We become children of God by the work of Christ on the cross and through the Holy Spirit. And there's really nothing we can do to mess that up. We are God's children. We don't become more like God's children. We don't someday gradually evolve into God's children. We are his children. And there's really nothing we can do to mess that up. Uh, That is the justifying work of God. What he does to give us a position and status as saved people as his children. But the reality is that what we are then... Uh, in God's sight is perfect, blameless, justified in His sight. But what we are here on earth as we live out our life is very flawed people full of sin. Our sin's wiped away, it's forgotten, it's forgiven, it's dealt with. But our character and our nature is still quite flawed. Jacob uh, may have been Mr. Happy Feet, but the reality is inwardly he was still a guy whose character was quite flawed, right? Uh, who still uh, did not understand really what it meant to be uh, a child of blessing and to be a blessing to the world. And we know that Jacob still didn't get it completely by the end of the story when it says, after all this, and after he finally gets Rachel as his wife, it says, so Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her much more than Leah. After all that, uh, when it comes down to it, Jacob is still quite a selfish, self-centered guy who can love Rachel, but really will not love Leah. And God God wants to give, uh, in a sense, give Jacob a a dose of his own medicine. Now, I don't know how much Jacob observed what was going on in his own life. The text doesn't really say. But the author clearly wants us to get this message. And this... Uh, several key points, and we won't go into all of them, but there's several key points that the author uses to show us what what this story is about. Number one, the emphasis on family trust, right? Makes a big deal about this. Laban two times says, you're family, right? You're family. It means something to be family, right? And in the end, that family trust was violated, right? What had Jacob done? How had Jacob handled his family trust as brother of Esau? Right? As his son of as a son of Isaac. What had Jacob done? Well, he had 
used his brother and he had lied to his father. He completely disregarded uh, the duty as a son and a brother to his family. Right? And that comes back to him. Second thing, uh, the dark. Right? I love how in this story, it's under, the, it's under the cover of darkness that this deception is carried out. And uh, in the darkness, Laban brings the wrong daughter to Jacob, right? Just as uh, Jacob had done to his blind father, and in the darkness had presented the wrong brother, right? Uh, vulnerability and intimacy. Uh, it's, it's interesting how in this story, at one of the most vulnerable and intimate moments of Jacob's life, he is used and tricked. He is deceived. Okay? Just as his father was at a very vulnerable time in his life, as he, was, as he was sick, as he was blind, as he was longing to give his own blessing to his son, he was deceived and tricked by his own child. Right? As he's all coming back around on, on, on Jacob. Uh, lastly, uh, Jacob was clearly used for Laban's gain. Right? What was this all about? Well, it, it was about getting both of his daughters married off, and it was about seven more years of labor. Okay? It was about getting seven more years of free labor. Right? Uh, Jacob is very much being used, just as Jacob had very much used his brother and his father to his own selfish ends. Uh, that's what the author wants us to see. That while Jacob was a child of promise, and that was never going to change, that there was much about Jacob's life that desperately needed altering and changing. And God was going to use um, this bitter cup, these bitter experiences to help mold and shape and teach Jacob what it's like to be on the other end of it. Uh, to be um, used and tricked and deceived. Um, it's a great picture of the sanctifying work of God in our own life. Uh, and it's important to distinguish in a story like this the difference between punishment and discipline. Right? If you are in Christ, and you've come to the cross, and you've put your faith in the work of Christ, Jesus has fully paid the penalty of sin. Right? Okay, your sins, past, present, and future, have all been paid for completely by the blood and work of Christ. There's never anything that you will ever be required to do to add or to, to supplement what Jesus has done. The penalty is paid in full. And as such, we will never pay a penalty for sin. Punishment is a penalty for sin. Right? Uh, and sadly, a lot of us still want to punish ourselves for sin, right? We do something stupid and we want to beat ourselves up as punishment. We want to pay some extra price because we feel bad and we think if we pay some for it, we'll feel better. It's not necessary. Romans 1, great verse, 8.1 says, uh, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, your sins are covered. They are forgiven the penalty is done away with. There's nothing you can or need or should ever do to pay for those sins. Right? But discipline is a different thing. Discipline is a teacher okay, that schools us in the right attitude and behavior. 
And while we never pay the penalty of sin, we often suffer the consequences of sin as a teacher that disciplines us. And there's a big difference. There's all the difference in the world. When we suffer the consequences of sin, uh, when we bear the bitter wounds of sin and its consequences, it's never punishment for a believer. But it is a teacher intended to instruct us on uh, what it feels like, right? What it feels like to be the victim of sin. And God does it because He wants to transform our life. He wants to shape in us His own character and nature. He wants to root out of us the things in our life, the selfishness, the pride, the anger, uh, the, the self-worship, the self right? That cause huge damage to people around us. And the reality is, we don't see those things in us, right? Did Jacob have any idea what a creep he was? I don't think so, right? Because we tend not to see ourselves very well. See, we all have these special magic glasses that when we look in a mirror at ourselves, we always look better to ourselves than we are, right? Somehow, you know, we, we fix up and we don't look at the stuff that's ugly, uh, God's given us some very special gifts to discipline us, to shape us, to uh, do this work in us. Uh, he's given us the blood of Christ, right? And by the powerful work of the cross, great things are changed inwardly in us. We are given a new nature in Christ. We are given new birth and new life, right? Uh, we are given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes in and does a transforming work in us, of making us alive in Christ, of giving us new insight, new vision, Right? God's given us His Word. Okay? He instructs us in right and wrong. Uh, James says it is like a mirror that we can hold up and we can see ourselves and it should help us see the flaws and faults and weaknesses in our own life. Uh, but lastly, God has given us the wonderful gift of the consequences of sin. Right? And you know, we love this one most of all. Okay? He's given us the opportunity to experience from the other end, the damaging effects of sin. Right? Uh, and that's exactly what happens here with Jacob. He gets to experience firsthand the bitter pain of, uh, of sin from the other end. How the tables turn, right? Uh, another English idiom, you know, a taste of your own medicine. Right? It means, you know, what you so freely gave out to others... You get to experience yourself. My son-in-law, one of my son-in-laws is a, is a sheriff deputy. And when he went through the police academy, went through training, uh, they, get to, they get training in using all kinds of special weapons of torture. Uh, and one of them is a taser gun, you know. And they get to learn how to use it rightly and whatever. And uh, in order to be able to certified to use a taser gun, they have to be tased themselves, okay. Now how's that for fun, right? But it's important that they get a sense for what they're doing to somebody else before they do it. They know what it feels like. So they will be much more careful about how they use it. Well, that's exactly what God does in our life. And the reality is, when we look at God's protection, was God protecting? Was He sovereign here? Absolutely. Absolutely. And God sovereignly allowed certain things into Jacob's life uh, to teach him And the reality is that God cannot work through us until He has done a significant work in us. 
And this is one of the means and ways that God works in us. Uh, we have to confront the demons in our own life. Um, it's never fun to be a victim of sin. Okay? It's never fun to be on, on the other end of it. Right? It's great fun when you're the one sinning. Okay? There's great joy in that for a season. Right? Uh, when it gets turned on us, it's not fun. Right? Uh, but God wants to use these things to teach us. Right? He wants to bring to the surface flaws in our character that he needs to work on. I remember when I was when I was young and Mr. Happy Feet, okay, and uh, a fairly new Christian and quite excited about everything. I thought honestly, because I had been a Christian for like five whole years, I'd been to Bible school, I knew all about the Bible, I was like the epitome of godliness. I remember thinking of just how incredibly patient I was as a human being, how really I was beyond being unnerved or unraveled, just the walking picture of spirit you know, filled patience, right? And then I had children, right? And another child, another child, another child. I had four children, right? Who were great instructors on how impatient I really was, right? And by child number four, I realized I had no patience at all. None, right? Okay, God wants to do that work in our life. Uh, What do we do with this? Well, I I think what we do with it is this. Uh, probably all of us have blind spots in our lives, areas of weakness. And uh, I, I think oftentimes the trouble that comes into our life, okay, the, the struggles that we deal with often ought to reveal a thing. Okay? And if we're sensitive and, and willing to ask the questions, what is this about? Right? What are the things that really just bug you? What are the things that people do to you that just push buttons, right? That just irritate you, right? And, uh, and you find that it's, it's like a theme, you know? It's like everybody does this to me at some point, right? It's not just one person, but lots of people have this effect on me. And it brings out certain feelings or certain at- attitudes or certain responses in me that I don't like, right? Okay, that's a gift. It's a gift from God. And God's trying to say to you, that, that thing is something you need to work on. Okay, that thing is what I'm trying to teach you about. It's a character flaw in your life. Right? Now, I think we can get out of it if we, if we deal with those things. right? Because God brings good things into our life. He doesn't bring these things into our life to torture us. He brings them in to teach us. The quicker we learn the lesson, I think the quicker it goes away. Second thing is that when we become victims of other people's sin, right, and we feel the betrayal, the rage, the anger, the hurt um, that comes with that, it should be a teacher to us that uh, we need to be more compassionate, uh, that we need to be more understanding of how our sin has affected others. Because we get this idea that my sin doesn't really hurt anybody. It does, right? When we lose our temper, when we say cruel things, when we react wrongly, it hurts people. If you don't believe it, remember what it feels like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that um, for the cross, Lord, we thank you that, like Jacob, we are 
even though we are sinful, wicked creatures who often uh, are controlled by our selfishness and our our lies, our pride, that, Lord, you, you have forgiven all of that. You've washed it away. That in your sight, those things are not held against us. And uh, the penalty, the punishment, the price of sin has been paid in full through the blood of Christ. Lord, we thank you for that so much. Lord, we also thank you that you love us enough to not leave us as we are, as spoiled children. Uh, And you work in us to change our hearts and lives and transform us into more godly, more caring, more compassionate people who are like you. And sometimes those lessons can be quite painful. Uh, Sometimes you bring very bitter things into our life. Lord, as James says, help us to be joyful in those things, knowing that they produce in us godliness and character, and to embrace them as wise and careful teachers that make us into better people for your glory uh, and for our effectiveness in ministry to be a blessing in the world. Lord, continue your work of teaching and shaping us, we pray in Jesus' name. The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.